are in the book of Jonah over the next month, and today we are in the belly of the fish. And I'm telling you, this is a great morning. It will be a powerful morning. We will have to do a lot of thinking, a lot of soul searching today, because if you know the story, and we're going through this week after week, Jonah, the prophet of God, uh, disobeys God's call to go to Nineveh. He ends up going to a different city, and God says, I have other plans for you. He's thrown off a boat, swallowed by a fish, and today he's in that fish. And we're going to talk about what that means for us, what it means for our world, what does it mean for our church and the church, even uh, nationally. And so we've got a lot of good work to do today. Uh, I think it's going to be a great time, and I, I know that you're going to be transformed uh, by the power of this story that is typically sort of considered a Sunday school story, right? This is the story you hear when you're two. And you see the pictures and the cartoons for uh, those of us oldies. It might be the flannel graphs of the old Sunday school days, right? And you hear this story from the youngest ages. But sometimes it's not until you're much older when you begin to realize the power and the depth of this story. Uh, Jonah is one of those timeless stories with a timeless truth. That's why this story is among, I'm going to say, at least the top 10 most familiar stories in all of human history. I mean, can you imagine that? There are some stories told of old, some stories from ancient times that have stuck with every generation in every era on every continent, and it just grabs us at the soul level, and that is the book of Jonah. As with every timeless story, there's a moral to the story, and the moral of the story is this, that those who appear to be the most godly often have the most trouble showing the mercy of God. That's the moral of Jonah. It's not about the fish, not about the miracle. It's about this moral that says, for those of us who, who claim a form of godliness, for those of us who might go to church, we might be religious, we might have been raised in religious you know, environments and upbringings, we tend to be the most unmerciful, the most judgmental, which is truly far from God far from the heart of God. So we've got to look at Jonah, not just as a story to learn from, but as a mirror to look at ourselves through. We look at ourselves at this mirror and we have to ask ourselves, are we like Jonah or are we like Jesus? And when we see ourselves up against the mirror of Jonah, we might have some hard things to discover and maybe even some life choices to make. So let's retell the story of chapter one. We've talked about this last week. Chapter one, we see that God commands Jonah, the prophet of Israel, this highly respected prophet of Israel to go to Nineveh. This is the evil Nineveh, the evil empire of Nineveh, the Assyrians and their capital who are about to destroy, decimate Israel. I mean, they are mortal enemies. God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach a message that stands against their godless violence. Jonah, without even thinking, nope, I'm going the opposite direction. <laughs> Nineveh's that way, I'm going that way. He goes the opposite direction, gets on a boat, and sails away from the heart of God. Now, to show you how shocking this would be for a prophet of Israel to go to the, the king of Nineveh, it would be the exact same, and I mean the exact same as a famous pastor in Kiev, Ukraine, being told by God to go to Moscow, set up shop, in Red Square and preach against the Kremlin. It's the exact same thing. Israel is a small, sort of a weak power. 
The Assyrians, whose capital is Nineveh, is this mega world power that is dominating and has eyes to create an empire even through the nation of Israel. It's the exact same thing. So you can imagine a prophet from Kiev, Ukraine, thinking, wait a minute, the reason why God is sending me to the Kremlin is because he wants them to get their act together so he can show mercy to them. And the last thing people want to see when they are being unjustly and horrifically pressed against by violence, I mean, bloodthirsty violence, the last thing we want is for there to be mercy shown to the enemy. This is the struggle of Jonah. And by the way, Assyria through Nineveh ended up destroying Israel, destroying the 10 tribes of Israel, utterly decimating them, and they do not exist today as a result. So we are talking about very real enemies, very real bloodshed, very real injustice. And so we can understand why Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, because if he does, God's for sure gonna show mercy to them, and that's the last thing he wants. So he is out of there. Uh, Jonah is then pursued by God because as the story goes, God is not only wanting to save Nineveh, but to save the heart of Jonah. And so Jonah is pursued through a storm and, and, and these sailors, they throw Jonah off into the sea and he's swallowed by a great fish. We see at the very end of Jonah chapter one, verse 17. Now the Lord had arranged a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. I wanna be clear. We are not talking about Jonah. We're not talking about Nineveh. We're not talking about Tarshish, the city that he was fleeing to. We're not talking about a ship or the ocean or a, a fish or a miracle. Jonah's not about any of that. Jonah is really about something quite different. Jonah is us. Nineveh is this, this broken world, this big, beautiful, broken world that God loves and he wants to give mercy to. Tarshish, where, where Jonah was fleeing to, is sort of this image of what it means for us to pursue a small, safe, comfortable world, to separate from the world that God loves so much, to retreat to sort of our own place of sameness, right? We see in this story that Jonah is tossed off the boat and swallowed by a fish. And we see in the belly of the fish, which is where we're gonna spend our time today, we see in the belly of the fish, Jonah is wrestling, Jonah is struggling. He's struggling with God, he's struggling with himself, he's struggling with faith, he's struggling with the future. And he struggles with this question. Do I embrace God's plan to love this big, beautiful, broken world around me? Or do I keep fighting him by seeking my own small, safe, comfortable world? Uh, I, I wanna be clear, a small, safe, comfortable world is what we all want. I mean, at least most of us, we want that small, safe, comfortable world, especially with all we're seeing today, right? With the chaos in our world today and the war and the bloodshed, the violence of our world today, yet we almost wanna say, can I just somehow cut that off and can I just live in a little bit of blissful ignorance? Can I cut off the pain and suffering of this world globally, but also locally, and can I just retreat into something that does not include suffering? A clean and safe world where I know everybody and I trust everybody and we basically believe the same thing and we come from the same background, my small, safe, comfortable, prosperous world. Can I be around people like me and people who like me? Can I live in this comfortable, healthy, happy life? I mean, who wouldn't want that? Can I live in a world where good things happen to good people and I'm a good people, right? Can I live in that world? Can I live in that world where a good God makes sure good things happen to me? Can I live in that world? Doesn't that sound great? 
But that's not the world. That's not the real world. It never works according to this plan for the long haul. And that's not the way God works either. So what does it feel like when our desire for a small, safe, comfortable, prosperous world where everything goes according to plan, what happens when that completely falls apart? What does that feel like? Well, it feels like the belly of a fish. And that's what we'll go through today. Chapter two, verse one. While in the belly of a fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from inside the belly of the fish. Now, keep in mind, this is a story told from millennia ago to ancient civilizations. Week one of our study, we talked about the campfire, the evening campfire, where the Israelites would, would join and, and they'd have some food together and they'd share stories together. And from the youngest ages, storytellers would tell origin stories about Israel, origin stories about who they are, origin stories about the heart of God. And Jonah was one of those origin stories. Why would the storyteller use the imagery of the sea? Why would the storyteller use the imagery of a storm and being cast into the sea and swallowed by a sea monster? Why would the storyteller use that as a metaphor of running from God. Well, we're gonna get a little, little strange here. The reason why the storyteller would use the ocean is because in ancient times, the ocean was the most dreaded and feared place on earth. Keep in mind, ancient times, 3,000 years ago, there were not underwater cameras. There was not underwater photos or videos. Uh, there was no scuba gear. There were no submarines. All they knew was about the first 20 feet of the ocean. If you were courageous enough to dive 20 feet under the ocean in the sunlight, that's all you would know about the ocean. And you would see, you know, coral and little fishies and it was all wonderful. But then every once in a while, when you were on the seas and the storms would rage and boats would break apart and sailors are in the ocean, there were some big monsters under there. They had no idea. They had no idea about sharks and whales and all the species. All they knew is that there were serious monsters underneath the depths of the sea and they were utterly terrified. Only the bravest people would dare to become sailors on the ocean sea because it was considered to be such a place of dread. So you can imagine the storyteller telling the story of Jonah and everybody is already feeling, oh, the ocean, the dark black ocean and the storms of the ocean and our greatest fears being on a boat that splits apart in the middle of the ocean. I mean, the greatest fear imaginable in ancient times. And then every culture has sea monsters. Every culture has sea monsters. You go to every ancient civilization and their art and their drawings and there are sea monsters everywhere because all they knew was that there were big things that, that sometimes literally grabbed people from the ocean and sucked them down into the depths of the water. Some of you are planning on going to the beach this afternoon. Not no more. These sea monsters that would bring death and terror and then you're under the ocean, you're falling under the ocean and the feeling of sinking under this black ocean and not being able to breathe. And then you're swallowed by a sea monster. I mean, can you imagine anything more terrifying? Well, you actually can imagine something more terrifying, living inside the sea monster. Living inside the gut of a monster and you know what fish smell like. They did, you may not, but they know what the inside of fish smells like and you are inside the gut of a sea monster and you are surrounded by decaying carcasses and it is pitch black. Not a single photon of light 
day after day after day, the guts of the fish are pressing and digesting and squeezing. Some of you are looking away. <laughs> That's called the EBGBs. Actually, technically, heebie-jeebies. I looked this up. It has an H in it. So here's the scholarly definition of the heebie-jeebies. A condition of extreme nervousness caused by fear, worry, or strain. That's why the storyteller is telling the story of the sea and the storms and the breaking apart of the ships and casting into the ocean and sea monsters and in the belly of the sea monster because everybody around this campfire would be on edge. What is going to happen next? And then what we see in Jonah chapter two is... There's this very long pause. The entire chapter is Jonah in the belly praying. He's praying. And as he's praying, he begins by owning his pain and crying out to God. Verse two of chapter two. I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead and Lord, you heard me. Here he is in this dark, claustrophobic hole without escape, not knowing if he's gonna live or die. And he cries out to God and he says, I am in great trouble here. I am in great agony here. And, and the wonderful thing about the prayer of Jonah and the wonderful thing about much of God's word is a lot of it is just prayers of pain. Prayer of pain. If you read the Psalms, the, the, the longest book in the Bible by far, about half of those songs are songs of pain, prayers of pain. And what does that say? To me, that says God is very, very comfortable listening to our cries, listening to our, our pain, hearing our anguish. It's almost like he wants us to let him know what we're feeling and to have the freedom to do that. Psalm 22 is one of those psalms. It's probably the most famous psalm of pain in the scripture. My God, my God, the psalmist says, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. This is King David, a man of God, after God's own heart, who's being pursued by, by King uh, Saul. And, and he's, he's being sought after for murder, right? They're gonna put him to death and he's saying, God, I'm, I'm trying to obey you. I'm trying to praise you. I'm trying to honor you, yet I'm being pursued for murder. They want me dead. God, I pray, but still I'm being pursued. I cry out to you, but still there is no relief. And King David in the Psalm is never condemned for being honest with God, never. Even Jesus himself cried out a prayer of anguish. This is Jesus, this is the fullness of divinity, right? In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, Jesus, right before the cross, he cries out, everything is possible for you, God. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus is simply being honest and he say, he's saying, I am struggling, I am suffering. I'm about to be arrested unjustly, I'm about to be tortured, I'm about to be tried unjustly, I'm about to go to the cross and I've done nothing wrong. Heavenly Father, is there a way this suffering can be taken from me? And God says, no, that's not the way life works. That's not the plan. If Jesus was honest with God about his own suffering, if King David was honest with God about his suffering, if Jonah was honest with God about his suffering, we can be too, right? And listen, I know many, many people are suffering. Many people are suffering. There was a wonderful woman in the front row who just couldn't stop weeping for the destruction that's happening in Ukraine. 
the senseless, senseless death. God just gave her heart of compassion and she was weeping until the minute the service started. And we prayed for her and, and just, you have the heart of God. Your sorrow is carrying the heart of God who also weeps for these people. Some of us are suffering for other people, bearing those burdens. Others of, others of us have our own burdens to bear and our own family problems and our own relationship issues and our own physical or emotional things that we're going through. And just know that you can be absolutely honest with God and just bear it to God. And, and I'm telling you, this place, you can be honest here as well. Be honest where you're suffering. If somebody asks you walking in, hey, how's it going? And you're not doing well, just say, I am not doing well. I am struggling and can I talk to somebody? And there will be a bunch of people coming right by your side and talking to you and praying with you and comforting you with the presence of God. We can be honest about our struggles. We don't have to impress God. I wish, I wish there was a switch right here that just said, no more trying to impress God. Stop it. But we're raised in this whole kind of religious paradigm sometimes that, oh, we have to please God with our lives and we have to honor God with our lives. And listen, I get some of the heart of that, but some of it is, is, is comes from this really terrible place that says, oh, you know what? You're, you're a sinner. You're separated from God. He's against you until you please him with your obedience. He's against you until you please him with your worship. He's against you until you please him with your faithful devotion, right? It just sets up this, this very odd, very wrong paradigm that God is against us by default, right? We're sinners separated from God. He's against us by default. But oh, well, now we learn some things about the Bible. Oh, well, now he warms up to us. Oh, now we're obedient to the commandments. Oh, he warms up to us. Oh, we pray the white way and read the right things and we're in the Bible and we go to church and now we've pleased God. Stop it. Just stop it. He does not need to be pleased. He is not against you and never against you. He loves you and you can be honest with your struggle, honest with your fear, honest where you are out of faith, honest where you don't necessarily believe what you believed before, honest that you're struggling and weak and not having to be courageous to please God. Hebrews 4.15 says this, this high priest Jesus of ours, understands our weakness. Get this. Jesus understands our weakness for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Jesus suffered in every way we suffer. In every way. If you're suffering with loneliness, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Oh, there's Jesus. Do you suffer with a physical ailment? Read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John. No one suffered as much as Jesus did physically. If you're suffering with being rejected, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus was rejected time without number. I don't feel God's presence. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Jesus quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes the exact same thing King David did. Jesus has experienced it all. And that should give us some comfort, right? It may not fix in areas we're struggling, but it comforts us when we struggle. If you've lost a loved one, just know that God is with you. He hurts with you and he comforts you with his presence and his love. If you're estranged from a family member and, and, and you wanna reconnect with this family member but you just can't seem to bring forgiveness and reconciliation and your heart is aching, just know God is with you. He hurts with you and he comforts you with his presence and his love. 
If you're lonely and you just don't have the depth of family or friends that you long for, God is with you. God cares for you. His presence and love is with you. And reach out and let's get you connected. If you're struggling through a diagnosis, a physical or mental diagnosis that has you scared, God is with you. Jesus empathizes with you. He's gone through that. Let his presence and peace comfort you. If you're questioning your faith, you don't necessarily believe anymore, or you don't know what you believe anymore, let God's peace comfort you and let you know you are okay. That's the prayer of Jonah, just honest with God about his struggles. Then Jonah confesses he has dishonored God. Sometimes struggle in life comes from circumstances that are out of our control or people do things to us, but sometimes we make a mess out of our own lives and that's what Jonah did. And so he confesses, he says, God, I have made a mess out of my own life. Verse four, oh Lord, I'm driven from your presence, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. Jonah says, I know I've blown it here. You told me go that way, I went that way, I'm facing the consequences of that. And not only was he facing the consequences of it, the sailors almost lost their lives as a result of Jonah's disobedience. And so Jonah says, listen, I messed this up. I messed this up. I have messed up my life. I've just about messed up the lives of others. And some of you can relate to this. Some of you can relate. You've done some bad stuff. You know it. You've done some bad stuff and you feel the weight of that guilt. You feel the weight of that shame. Perhaps you've hurt people that you should have loved with your words or your actions and you feel the weight of that. Some of you are struggling with an addiction, a chemical addiction, a behavioral addiction. You just got yourself into some things and then now it has you and you just can't see any way of escape and you're feeling the guilt and shame of that addiction. Maybe you've done something that no one even knows about but you. You've done some things in your past and you know what they are and you thank God every day no one else does but you know God knows and you live with that sense of condemnation that God knows it all. And maybe I'm under his condemning judgment now and maybe I will be under his condemning judgment for eternity. You know what that feels like. If this is you and you are living under the weight of what you perceive is guilt and shame and judgment, I want you to be free from that right here and now. I want you to live free from guilt and free from shame and free from condemnation and free to know how loved you are and how forgiven you are by grace through Jesus Christ. Most of us live with this kind of transactional paradigm, right? That I did something bad, therefore I must pay the price for that. That's just its consequences. It's just how we are raised. It's just the way human nature goes. I've done something bad. I've got to pay the consequence of that. Now, some of us call that justice, and I understand that. But there is justice and there is mercy. And the book of Jonah tells us God is a God of mercy. He's a God of mercy. And so he wanted to show mercy to Nineveh. He wanted them, yes, let's stop the senseless violence. Let's stop the empire and enslaving people for sure. But God says, I want to show mercy I'm not going to, to bring punishment on you. I just want you to, be, to receive my mercy and be merciful, right? And all of this is a gift from God. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We never can. We never will. It's simply a gift, a free gift of God through Jesus Christ. I love Ephesians 1, 6, and 7. We praise God for the glorious grace, glorious grace 
He has poured out upon us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. You see us in this at all, anywhere? No, we're not here. It's something that God does for us. He just does it. He forgives us through Jesus. That's why we follow Jesus. That's why we're centered on Jesus. That's the gospel. It's the good news. It is the message that we are forgiven by God alone, who sent Jesus alone, that we receive by faith alone. That's the good news. If you're feeling, sensing, carrying guilt or shame or believe you're under God's condemnation, let the gospel, let God's grace, let God's forgiveness wipe that clean. Wipe it clean so you can know, and I mean know, that you are a perfect daughter of God in his eyes. You're a perfect son of God in his eyes. That's the message. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus gave his life. While Jonah was in the belly of the fish, he also commits to fulfill his vow to serve God. He's kind of getting the point, at least for a moment. He gets the point, I'm, I'm suffering, I'm struggling, I'm in this dark place, and, and he, he is honest with God about his pain. He then is honest with God that he has failed, and then he commits, you know what, I'm gonna fulfill my vow to serve God. I'm gonna get my act together. Verse nine, I will offer sacrifices to you, God, with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Now, Jonah has no idea here whether or not he's gonna live or die. He has no idea. God didn't tell him anything. He has no idea what his future holds, but he's starting to get the point that he needs a turnaround. Jonah is every bit as much about religious people repenting than the city of Nineveh repenting. In fact, I would even say more so the book of Jonah is about Jonah and his journey and his struggle. And in the belly of the fish, he says, I'm going to do better. I'm gonna do better. God, if you call me to show mercy, I'm gonna show mercy. I'm gonna praise you. I'm gonna to commit to do better. And I'm gonna recognize that I need to be saved. This is the beauty of Jonah. Not just about saving the evil city of Nineveh, who is gonna be judged. It's about saving Jonah, the judger, he needs to be saved every bit as much as the city. And Jonah says, God, you are my salvation. I need to be saved. God is the God of second chances and a third if we need it. I heard that from a pastor decades ago, decades ago. God is the God of second chances and a third if we need it. Oddly enough, that pastor fell and needed a second chance, right? We fall too and need a second chance. We don't have perfect belief. We don't have perfect faith. Never have, never will. We struggle intensely sometimes, either by the circumstances around us or the mistakes that we make and we make our own suffering. But in the end, God is a God of second chances. God gave Nineveh a second chance. God gives Jonah a second chance. And by the end of Jonah, Jonah needs a third chance. He blew it again. But don't you love it that God's got a second chance? God's got a third chance? Some of us, you're saying, uh, there's about 24. I'm on 24. Is that allowed? Absolutely. In fact, in the Gospels, God says, if you need 70 times seven chances, if you need 490 chances, you've got it. There is no end to the depth of God's grace. Isn't that cool? Second chances and a third if you need it. Now, so far, we have personalized Jonah, right? Jonah is us. Jonah is us. Jonah's a mirror revealing our heart. Do we have a heart of mercy or a heart of judgment? Jonah reveals that. 
But Jonah's not just about us individually, Jonah's about us collectively. And so indulge me for just a few minutes here. There is an inescapable reality that Jonah is about the church. Not one local church, but about the church. I'd even say the church in America needs the book of Jonah more than anything else. I mean, I, I think if there was one message to the church in America, it is Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. Jesus says himself, all I'm gonna show the world is the sign of Jonah. So if Jesus is pointing to Jonah, I think we gotta take Jonah very, very seriously, right? What is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is we are called to bring mercy to this big, beautiful, broken world that God loves so much. And we ought to love this world the same way as God does. We ought to give ourselves to this world the same way God did. But the church in America has some battles, battles. And for those of you who, who know what's going on in the church in America, you'll be nodding your head. For those of you who don't, you'll go, oh, that's pretty awful. Here's what's going on in the church in America. The church in America is in the belly of the fish right now. The church in America was struggling years ago. A precipitous drop in church attendance becoming increasingly culturally irrelevant. So we were already in steep decline. Then the church in America found itself in a very awkward position, intertwined in a very complex presidential election we won't go through. But the church tied itself to politics. Never a good idea. Then COVID shut much of the church down for over a year. During that time, a great migration happened in the church where the church started separating to places of sameness. I wanna go where everybody agrees with me. I wanna go where everybody's got the same politics. I wanna go where everybody believes the same thing, right? The culture, the American culture, threw the church overboard. American culture has absolutely tossed the church overboard, essentially saying to the church, you're no longer relevant like you used to be. We are kinda done with the church. Statistically, our culture is done with the church. And here we sit, contemplating everything. Some of the church is angry because they're not in power like they used to. They don't have the influence they used to. They're angry. Some of the church is deconstructing. Have you heard of that, deconstructing? Google it, it's a thing, deconstructing. Basically saying, I don't know what I believe anymore. I don't know if how I was raised is the foundation of my faith. I'm starting to question some things. I'm starting to wonder why I believe what I believe. Some are angry, some are deconstructing, some have emerged with a whole new way of looking at life and faith and following Jesus. To put it this way, some churches are committed to Tarshish. Tarshish was that small, safe community, refuge away from God's calling to engage this world. And so some churches are these safe communities where everybody believes the same thing and judges the same way. Those are Tarshish churches. Then there are those who are deconstructing, just trying to walk a journey of faith. So many people here at Rancho are in that deconstruction right now. I mean, it is so much fun to walk with people who are reevaluating what they believe and why they believe it, solidly following Jesus, solidly looking at God's word, but just kind of wondering what of my perspectives came more from my upbringing in religion than the person and work of Jesus. And then some have been resurrected to a whole new way of looking at life and following Jesus. And it is a resurrected life of freedom. Freedom to know that God loves us, 
Freedom to know that we're forgiven, absolutely. To know that we're saved by grace and not ourselves. To know that this is a big, beautiful, but broken world that we need to love. We need to engage, not to judge, but to show mercy, following the call to Jonah that was perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. To become more like Jesus and less like Jonah. That's my hope and prayer for this church. That's why we're doing Jonah before Easter. Because we as a church community have to really examine who are we as a church? Are we the Tarshish church that just wants a small, safe community of sameness that judges the world around us? No, that's the enemy of the book of Jonah and they were the enemies of Jesus. The religious people who thought themselves to be the most godly ended up being the villain of Jonah and the villain in the gospels and put Jesus to death. Jonah's that mirror. Jesus is the mirror. Can we be more like Jesus and less like Jonah? And if this church can emerge from the belly of the fish, I don't know, Easter morning, (laughs) and say, we are unified in our mission. We know what we're doing. We're not escaping this world to Tarshish. We're not trying to seek small, safe, comfortable. We are going to, as God calls, engage this world, engage our neighbors. We're not gonna judge this world from a cliff the way Jonah does in in chapter four. We're not gonna be separate from this world as though we're better than them. We are going to love and engage and serve this world the way Jonah should have and the way Jesus did. We're gonna be more like Jesus and less like Jonah. And each of us will figure out our way to do it. God's not calling us to confront the Kremlin this afternoon, so you can rest assured, right? That's not your job, maybe, it's not mine. But God is giving us each a calling, and that calling is to follow Jesus, to be selfless, sacrificial, and love this world. We're gonna close with communion and a song that is so very powerful. Please take your communion cups, and and there's a a wafer of bread at the top. If you don't have a communion cup, please feel free to raise your hand and, and they'll get you some. This is the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples right before he was put to death. The Passover meal. That Passover meal included bread and the breaking of bread. We have somebody over here, uh, West, who needs a cup. Take that bread and break the bread as was done at the Passover meal. And Jesus says, let this bread remind you that this is my body which is broken for you. This is the depth to which I love you, that I pursue you with forgiving grace. My body will be broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup of the Passover meal, the wine that had already symbolized freedom. But Jesus says true freedom is gonna come when you realize how much I love you and that that love will take me to the cross and my blood will be shed for you. I will take the sins of the world, the evil of the world, the brokenness of the world upon me. I will become a victim of this broken world. This is my sacrifice for you to show love, to show forgiveness. Take this in remembrance of Jesus. Would you pray with me, God, as we go through this book, a book that Jesus himself says is the key to show your mercy. Would you allow this to impact us? This is not just an ancient story told long ago. This is our story. 
how we wrestle when things don't go as we had planned and, and the things in our mind that should make sense don't make sense. And when we're wrestling with showing mercy to a world that is so broken, God, would you allow us to have the prayer of Jonah, a prayer that is honest about our suffering, a prayer that confesses where we have uh, gone astray and we need your forgiveness that relies on your unconditional love for us through Jesus Christ, then a prayer that commits to fulfill our vow, that we will follow Jesus and that we will, like Jesus, love the world around us that we will replace condemnation and judgment with grace and mercy, the same grace and mercy that we have received through Jesus Christ. May we be agents of that grace and mercy in this world that you so love. God, help us to be at peace, even when the storms rage, and help us to be agents of peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 